to The Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors and other experts about what's helped them to work at their best and how we can create organisations where everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker and award-winning author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time. You'll find the show notes at helenbeedham.com where you can also sign up for my insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and home. Now, let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode eight in the sixth series of The Business of Being Brilliant. And I'm recording this brief weekly update on Friday the 27th of October. I know, how can October be almost over already? I haven't scuffed happily through fallen leaves, picked conkers or even thought about bonfire night yet. I'd better get my seasonal skates on before November blows into town. Mind you, I am feeling pretty smug about having found the biggest, brightest yellow pumpkin to carve. It practically glows in the dark all by itself. We're going to carve a cat in it in honour of our new rescue cat, Maisie, who has quickly become the most adored member of the family. My 12-year-old daughter has informed me that top of her Christmas list, which she has been enthusiastically compiling for some time already, is a pair of kittens. No chance. One feline is beautifully, heartwarmingly, entertainingly enough. But we're not going to mention Christmas again until we're into December at the very least. I will say that the best thing about October drawing to a close is the extra hour we gain tomorrow night when the clocks go back. Yippee! But don't be despondent if you're thinking it's a once a year luxury. There are clever ways to reclaim your time every week of the year. Here are two. First up, if you or your teams are wrestling with overfull calendars and long working hours, join me at my free 30-minute webinar on Tackle Team Overload on the 8th of November. I'll explain how you can use Time Intelligence, or TQ, to free up your working hours and I'll share four great questions to ask your team or yourself, four signs of overload to watch out for, and an agenda for kickstarting change with your team. The link to full details and to register is in the show notes and on my website landing page. Secondly, throughout autumn, I'm running several Time Intelligent Teams workshops for clients. It's an effective, engaging way to get teams to identify what will help them work smarter, not harder, and have fun along the way. The two-hour session is packed full of interactive elements and practical takeaways. Plus, everyone gets a free signed copy of my award-winning book. There's a link to download my workshop flyer in the show notes, and another link to book a call with me if you suspect your team needs this help. Hopefully, one or both of these sessions will help you and your team feel less time pressured and more time rich as autumn gives way to winter. 
If you're thinking you're too busy to solve your overload problem now, ask yourself if it's worth losing good team members to burnout or a better work-life balance somewhere else. This small investment of time now can generate far bigger returns for you and your team over the coming months and can set you up for a brilliant end of year or 2024. Enough said. Right, let's hear now from this week's guest, who's on a mission to make senior roles in financial services across the UK accessible and fulfilling to anyone who wants this career path, no matter what their background is. Have a listen. My guest this week is Sophie Holm. Sophie leads Progress Together, a not-for-profit membership body which aims to level the playing field in UK financial services. As Head of Skills Policy at the City of London, Sophie was the founder and architect of a government-commissioned task force into socio-economic diversity, after which she joined Progress Together as Chief Executive in September 2022. And throughout her working life, Sophie has focused on the power of business to bring about change, including working for a welfare-to-work organisation, a corporate responsibility membership body, as a trustee for Governors for Schools, and a member of the steering committee of the 30% Club. Her dad is a working-class East Londoner, and her mum a retired academic with immigrant parents. She lives with her partner and two mixed-race children who are big fans of Pokemon and Octonauts. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Sophie. Thank you very much for having me, Helen. <laughs> Lovely to have you on the show. And I'm chuckling at the Pokemon and Octonauts. <laughs> Fortunately escaped the Pokemon, but definitely didn't escape the Octonauts. <laughs> I'm wondering if you're out of that chapter yet. or uh, Well, I was just you. thinking as you were saying it, I probably need to update it by about six months or so. So yes, on to the next phase. Yeah, children can be fickle, passionate but fickle. <laughs> so, well, it's lovely to welcome you to the podcast and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your career and also about the work that Progress Together is doing and what its aims are and how things are changing and evolving in the world of financial services in the UK. So a, a quick question to ask that I often ask all my guests to ease us into the conversation is, if, if I gave you an extra day this week that nobody else caught. Well, maybe other people could enjoy it with you. How would you spend that extra day of free time? So I work full time. I have a busy job and I sometimes feel that my, my family are neglected because of that. So I think if I had an extra day, I would definitely spend it with my kids and my partner and navigating the complicated world of special educational needs. My daughter is, we think on the autistic spectrum. And so I'm just trying to figure all of that out. So more time in my day to figure that out would be fantastic. Yeah. I can understand that. It must be a lot to get your head round and to get informed about and always a pleasure to spend time with the family unwinding, isn't it, when you can let go of work. So Absolutely. that's great. And, and in terms of your career, I gave a little sketch of that in the introduction, but has there been something that has defined or given you direction in your career path along the way or has it evolved? Could you tell us how your career path has come to be to where sure. it is today? 
Sure, happy to. So if I reflect on my interests when I was a child, I used to play a game called Recruitment Agents. And I don't know any other child that used to play Recruitment Agents when they were five, six, seven. And I used to be the, the boss who would have a, my friend, who was my secretary, would come and tell me that I was seeing XYZ and they wanted to get a job in XYZ career. And I would have these imaginary people come to me and I would help them to get that job. And I'd completely forgotten that I used to play that game, but it was the one game that I always used to play. And then I went to university. I studied marketing as, as a degree. And I stumbled across an, an advert for a job as an employment advisor for what was then Work Directions, which is a welfare-to-work organisation now called Ingius. And I really wanted to support people that were long-term unemployed. I, th- I felt I had a, a lot to give in terms of building relationships, and I had this deep sense of injustice. So even as a child, I would do Blue Peter bring and buy sales all the time. I would always be trying to fundraise for some charity or other. And that has stayed with me for my whole career, the sense of fighting for people that need a bit of extra support. So I was an employment advisor, and then I worked for a consultancy supporting, as you say in my introduction, advising businesses with corporate responsibility. But then I worked uh, as head of skills at the City of London, thinking, well, how do we ensure that financial services as as a sector across the UK remains globally competitive? And one of the challenges is access to skills. How do we attract people into the sector and how do we get people to stay in the sector and have the right skills that that we need to be productive and, and competitive as a sector? So there's always been that theme around employability and Uh, and supporting people and I I think the one thing that's helped me thrive has been fantastic role models so if I think about my first job at Heart of the City which was the consultancy advising people with corporate responsibility I was in my mid-20s and I had a, a female boss who told me how to interact with chairs and CEOs across the city what to say how to give them time to to speak, but not take up too much of their time, get to the point quickly. And that served me well for the rest of my career. That's really great to hear. And just hilarious about that first game you used to play recruitment agents. You're right. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, oh, we used to play that when we were young. But you did (laughs) remind me that I'm the middle of three siblings and I have two brothers and it, you just reminded me out of the blue I had this flashback to this game we used to play called Trumpington where we must have been in our early teens and we were on our very little kiddies tricycles and chasing each other around with a plastic truncheon I mean it was completely daft and it had no community <laughs> sense of purpose behind it whatsoever unlike your story but it's fascinating to hear how that strong sense of wanting to help others make things fairer make the world of work more accessible for everybody was really a conscious thing for you from really early um, age and then through all your career choices and I love what you say about fantastic role models and how an early conversation you might have with someone who as you say it's not just for their technical knowledge perhaps that they help you but it's the fact that they help you learn and understand how to navigate these different interactions that we're going to come across in the world of work. I think that's such a powerful bit of learning to transfer on to someone, isn't it? Alongside whatever technical skills or qualifications people need to get into a job and and thrive in that role. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And if I th reflect back on, on what I was doing in that role, I was walking to meetings. Uh, we'd have lots of external meetings, but I would spend time getting from A to B with that boss. And in between those meetings, you have time to actually talk mm. about how do you carry yourself? What do you do? How are you going to get this, whatever it is you want to achieve that day? And I think we, we're at real danger of losing that for some of our younger members of staff when we've moved into this hybrid and, and remote world. And, and, and that does concern me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I keep hearing th comments to those effects and also reading research about that, about how actually our meetings are most effective when we have time to properly prepare from them for them and to switch off our brains from the previous conversation we've been having. So we have that transition time. But like you, I remember working in consulting in the early years of my career and, and often work, walking to clients around central London, always with a senior colleague. And that was when we did our real preparation and mental rehearsal for the mm. meetings. And I, like you, I learned loads in those walking conversations. So definitely, it's a very difficult thing to replicate in the online world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. And so coming on to talk a bit about social diversity, some of the people listening may be really familiar with that term, particularly if they're working already in the world of HR or diversity and inclusion. But can you just explain in a nutshell what it is and why it matters for people who might have a gist of the idea, but not really be so clear on, on why it's important? Mm, sure. So socioeconomic diversity is, is really having a variety of different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds within your workforce. And at Progress Together, we look specifically at senior level socioeconomic diversity. So who is at the top of organisations and do they have a varied socioeconomic backgrounds? But there are many organisations out there and indeed many employers also looking at broader socioeconomic diversity, who's coming in at the bottom and also who's working up to, to the top. And there are different ways of measuring socioeconomic diversity. We recommend the metric that's recommended by the Social Mobility Commission. And that's using parental occupation at age 14. So what was the job of your occupation of your main household earner when you were age 14? And there are other metrics that can also be used. But for employers, especially those that maybe have employees that are educated overseas, if you're asking whether someone went to state versus private school, sometimes that's not always applicable. Free school meals, for example, came in in the 80s. So if you have older members of staff, again, that wouldn't be applicable. So parental occupation at 14 is really the measure that, that we use and we recommend our companies and our members to measure that. And in terms of why we'd look at this, so the moral case to me is a given. Um, of course, we want people from different backgrounds within our companies. We want people to be able to access our companies from different socioeconomic backgrounds. It shouldn't matter what your mum or dad did as a job as to whether you can get a job in financial services. But unfortunately, we see time and time again that people that access financial services, law, professional jobs often have parents that also had professional jobs and know the rules of the game. So in the moral cases there, we want people to access particular sectors, but also to feel that they belong in a particular mm. sector. But for me, the business case is really key here. And the task force that you mentioned in my introduction that I set up, we had Andy Haldane, so former chief economist at the Bank of England, leading a work stream on the business case. Why would you want greater socioeconomic diversity, particularly at senior levels within the workforce? And the one thing that stood out for me was access to talent. What is the cost of wasted talent if we're attracting people in from a diverse range of backgrounds, but they're not 
stay in, they don't feel they belong mm. and, and they leave. And, and for, for me, that's a big issue. And especially in financial services where it's got the highest rate of job vacancies this year than, than ever before. So for me, that, that's really important in terms of access to talent. But also we can see that within the sector, there's a challenge compared to other sectors. So if we look at the class pay gap in financial services, it's the highest, the class pay gap is the highest in financial services of all the sectors. But we as a sector, we want to attract people with tech skills and financial services has a class pay gap that's four times higher than the tech sector. So if we really want to attract people with those tech skills that we need for the future, but we're not an inclusive sector and we we don't attract people to either join us or stay, then for me, that's a challenge. There's so much in there that I'd love to dig into. It's really, really interesting. So firstly, is the biggest problem, is the biggest challenge, is that for people from different or perhaps minority social economic backgrounds getting in or is it getting on? Is it progressing when they're there? It sounds from what you're saying that maybe they're able to get in perhaps in less representative numbers than it should be. But the sticking point is actually feeling that they're valued and welcomed and that they fit in. And so they're not staying. Is that right? Or are the challenges on both sides? So there's definitely challenges on both sides. But employers have done a fantastic job, really, in attracting more diverse candidates to join. I mean, I'm speaking about the financial services sector because that's the sector I focus on. But actually across the economy, there's a huge amount of work that's been done in terms of apprenticeships and diversifying graduate pipelines. And a piece of research that led to the task force, so this uh, piece of research was authored by the Bridge Group in 2020, found that across uh, financial services, we did a deep dive into eight organisations. And we found that at junior levels, 47% were from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. But at senior levels, it was 89% were from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. So great work taking place at the bottom, but actually they're not following up through the pipeline. We also found that employees from working class backgrounds progressed 25% slower than peers, and there was no link to job performance. So there were other barriers in place that were affecting whether someone from a working class background gets ahead in financial services. So that's really the rationale for why we set up Progress Together was to respond to that quite stark evidence. Yeah, that is really striking evidence. And I'd love to include a link to that research in the show notes if I can pick up with you Mm. afterwards, because that paints a very clear picture and what you were saying as well about the class pay gap. So am I right in understanding that you, you talked about this measure of parental occupation at age 14? So organisations that you're working with will go out and ask all their employees you know, existing and, and, and as people join that question amongst other presumably diversity related questions. And then they will look at, uh, much as they would their gender pay gap, they would look at levels of pay across different socioeconomic backgrounds and actually do that comparison? Is that how they arrive at that pay gap figure? Yeah, so most firms aren't there yet. Most firms haven't even thought about tracking their class pay gap. The class pay gap stat that that I just mentioned, that's from labour force survey data that's out there and that we've got that available for all sectors. In terms of what employers themselves are collecting, so We know that if we look at financial services, for example, the Women in Finance Charter, there are 
200 odd reporting signatories for the Women in Finance Charter. Three years ago, only 13 of those signatories were collecting data on socioeconomic background. And then a year later, I think it moved to 27 out of the 209, I think it was, and then it moved to 53. So it's still not collected by all employers, certainly within financial services Mm. or indeed across the economy. And so that's something that we're really keen to promote as progress together to start collecting that data. Because only when you know what your workforce looks like in terms of socioeconomic background, can you do something about trying to overcome those those challenges and barriers that face employees from, from working class backgrounds? Yeah, that makes sense. I get that. And and I know lots of organisations are finding it a challenge to collect and gather really robust, comprehensive, personal data like that and explain to employees why they're asking for this information and to give people confidence and understanding in how it's going to be used. So I know just that data collection exercise is quite a big objective for organizations to realize and the companies are only just used to reporting on gender pay gap we only have a voluntary minority ethnic employee pay gap so we're obviously not there on other aspects of diversity in terms of routine data collect Um, Mm. although it has come up in the uh, financial services regulators consultation that's just come out Mm. so socioeconomic background reporting uh, is included in in the consultation as as a voluntary requirement we would obviously love for that to be mandated because that's how we're going to change the the, the whole sector. It is difficult, but it's not impossible. So this year, we now have 40 members across our membership. So they represent over 30% of the financial services workforce. And as a group of companies, we have collected data from across that membership. And we now have the largest data set internationally on socioeconomic background and that's on 150,000 employees in terms of socioeconomic background so we know it's possible to collect data on socioeconomic background Mm. and indeed one of our members went from zero percent response rate on this to 65 percent within a month so it is possible um and and what i'm really wary of is employers putting it in the too difficult box because Mm. it's a challenge but it's not impossible. We can prove that because our members are collecting that data. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great, what's the word, advertisement for the fact that it's doable, having worked with your members to build up that fantastic data set. And just quickly, do do you look at the data and as well as, I know you said that it was the Labour Force survey data that had the statistics on the pay gap, but do organisations or do you look at stay gaps as well, like how long people are staying in a financial services role? So as part of our offer to member we members, we introduce them to our data partner, which is the Bridge Group, and we collect data on individuals' socioeconomic background and also their progression. So that's how we can track progression gaps yeah. and also how long someone has been within an organisation. So yes, we want to collect that. No, we don't have it yet because we're only in our first year of operation, but that's yeah. certainly where we want to get to. We think that's really important. But the evidence that I mentioned earlier, we know that people from working class backgrounds progress 25% slower than their peers with no link to job performance. So we know there's a progression gap. But like you say, what we want to get to also is, is how long do people stay around, even if they're not progressing? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And I hear you when you say you're a young organisation, you are obviously going to continue collecting data and growing your membership. So all of those things will expand over time. <coughs> Is it too early to ask you your view on what you think's changing 
if you had to do a stock take at this point in time in financial services around socioeconomic diversity, do you see some things happening faster? Are other things really hard to make, get traction on? What's the landscape looking like at the moment or the momentum? So the momentum is there, certainly. So we invited our members and their executive sponsors and CEOs to a roundtable last month in September for the launch of our annual data report, which, as I mentioned, had 150,000 employee data included. There was a huge response to that. We had a packed room. We had Baroness Penn, so Treasury Minister, attend. We had Andy Haldane attend. There was a real buzz in the room. Senior leaders talked about their own socioeconomic backgrounds and having to hide where they'd come from to feel that they could fit in. And a few of them around the table actually said, that's enough. We don't want to do that anymore. We want people that are coming up through the pipeline to feel that they can talk about where they have come from and still have the same chances to get ahead within financial services. So there's a real appetite from senior leaders to get going on this. Uh, and almost a kind of relief, I think, that we're starting to talk about it. And when I think about what gets traction, what encourages other employees to talk about this and for firms to take a stand and try and overcome some of the challenges, it's talking about lived experiences. So the more senior leaders that talk about their lived experience, the, the faster we'll get to where we want to get to. And ultimately, we as Progress Together, we want to get to parity. So we want socioeconomic diversity at senior levels to mirror socioeconomic diversity across the workforce so that progression gap goes. So there's a real buzz from, from senior leaders, which is really important, but also there's investor interest now. So I was speaking to an asset management member of ours and they had said that they'd seen a fourfold increase in inquiries from investors on socioeconomic diversity in the last 12 months. Wow. So there's obviously that interest there. And then the regulator interest that I touched on before the regulators were involved in the government commission task force that led to progress together. They also have now included socioeconomic background within the diversity and inclusion consultation. And for them, they've put a real flag in the sand saying there's an issue around groupthink here. If we have people from the same backgrounds and the same experiences all making the decisions together, there is a real concern about the, the, the quality and robustness of those decisions. Yes. And fascinating to hear how all those different levers or factors are hopefully pushing in the right direction, the leader interest and buzz and appetite uh, to get this agenda really flourishing in the city or in financial services, sorry, and both interest and demand from investors as well as regulators. When I think about making real change happen, you have to look at all the different factors in play and like a fleet of ships, get them all lined up and pointing the right way. Otherwise, you can't all motor ahead. And I had a question in mind about investors. So are you seeing this being driven by ESG goals and agenda? Is it that organizations are seeing their shareholders or their clients or their investors say show us more clearly what you're doing to meet your s goals and your esg is that's what's driving a lot of this interest there's lots of different drivers to to be honest i mean if you speak to the chief people officers they'll say the driver is to access to talent we need more talent this is a way of us getting the, t the talent there will be others so the chair of the audit committee, for example, will have a keen eye on what the, the regulators asking for, what are the standard setters asking for. So sustainability reporting requirements, we know that there's going to be a focus on 
on human capital, workforce diversity. And we suspect that where that's going to end up is a very clear focus on socioeconomic, because it just would make sense that it would. Now, there are also many other drivers from different people. So sometimes it takes a passionate leader, the CEO of an organisation, really to, to get this and really pushes it forward. Um, but it might be that they are just are personally passionate about it. So I've, I've seen different members respond to this for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And the burning platform might look a little bit different or the source of the momentum might look a little bit different depending on the context. And one thing just to flag, when we speak to diversity and inclusion specialists, often they see socioeconomic background as the golden thread. So if we get this right, it can actually have a positive impact on gender and ethnicity as well. So some are thinking, okay, well, rather than add to the burden of doing yet another diversity and inclusion uh, initiative, this actually will have multiple impact across the organisation. And that's yeah. something that we're, we're looking at, is which are the interventions that you can carry out for socioeconomic background that would also have an impact on gender and ethnicity and, and other issues as well? Yes, I can really understand that because whenever you improve aspects of the way organisations work to make it easier for one group to get in and get on, it inevitably and usually has the benefit of making that same opportunity more available to others who might be experiencing different kinds of barriers. And you mentioned the power of storytelling there. I'd love to ask you for an example, if you can draw on one, of someone, you talked about that big data set you have, and each Mm. data point is a human being with a life and a career story and ambitions and potentially career frustrations. Is, Is there a story or an example you could share from you know, one individual, not not to be named, obviously, but that helps bring this to life to people listening? Sure. I mean, I can reflect on my own story, which, which might be helpful. So I went for an interview, and this was in my mid-20s, and the interviewer had noticed I'd gone to university in Bristol. And she said, oh, I went to the University of Bristol as well. And I hadn't been to the University of Bristol. I'd been to the University of Western England. So that was a, an ex-poly. And immediately I thought, well, hold on do I fess up or do I just stay quiet? And I felt really of going to, in my mind, lower value university, lower quality education. So I didn't say anything. And it was accurate on my CV, but I just nodded and we moved on to the next part of the conversation. I got the job and had a brilliant time doing the job. And by chance, I encountered the chairman of that organisation. And he was talking to a group of school students about his education and the, his career path uh, and how he got to be chair of, of the organisation. He had also been to an ex-polytechnic. And it was that moment that I had that light bulb moment to really push myself forward and not to hide where I'd come from, not to hide my background. Uh, and the closest my dad had been to working in the city was selling newspapers when he left school at age 15 in Liverpool Street Station. And I didn't want to hide any of that anymore and I knew I didn't need to and I could push to be whatever I wanted to be and I didn't have to feel ashamed anymore and that story I hear time and time and time again across our membership other people that have felt they've had to hide who they are change their accent um, be something completely different and every time you do that it affects us as individuals that that mental toll of trying to conform to the dominant culture is impacting our 
our productivity, our, our, our performance. And, and really, that's why government commissioned the task force in, in the first place, because if, if everyone is, is trying to be something they're not and they're, they're effectively wasting energy. Yes, thank you for sharing that. And really lovely to hear your own story of how hugely meaningful it was to then later on meet the the CEO and discover he was from similar background, similar university. And I know just meeting one person that shares something in your life experience or background can make a huge difference um, as well. And particularly in an era when there's really high levels of loneliness at work and as you say you know not a strong enough sense of belonging and for people that have been listening and have been finding it really interesting to hear about the work of progress together and how you work with organizations in financial services what's the best way for them to connect or get in touch if they want to do that so you can contact me. I am available on LinkedIn, but also look at our website. So www.progresstogether.co.uk. Get in touch with us. We are available as a membership body for UK financial services. So not just the city, although we were set up by the City of London Corporation and uh, who led the task force I mentioned. We work with our firms on a, a number of different areas. Data is key. We are very much evidence led because we want to track what it is our members are doing and what's working. And that's the whole point of of our reason for being, is to be a safe space for members to share what works and what doesn't work. And and the only way for us to figure out what it is that really has impact is by getting the data and, and, and tracking which interventions work. So we are that safe space. We support firms to collect data and use that data to, to make changes internally. But we also, as a membership body, have webinars, workshops, resources. We've just launched a toolkit, for example, for our members to say, engage executive search firms on this agenda. How can you do that? What should you be asking your executive search firms? So all of that is, is available. So do reach out to us. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'll put those links in the show notes. And those sound like really useful resources for anyone inside financial services, but possibly outside as well to look at in terms of getting this on the agenda in their organisation, finding out what their own data is, and taking things from there. Sophie, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. And you've really painted so clearly for us the reasons why socioeconomic diversity matters for individuals, and for businesses and organisations. You shared some really striking statistics that are very memorable and quite a a strong call to action on this topic and and you've also shared both your own story and it's stories that you hear from others in the sector who essentially you're working on behalf of so thank you very much for joining me on the podcast you've been a brilliant guest oh thank you so much for having me helen thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this week's episode please rate the podcast online leave a review and share it with friends. And if you like to watch as well as listen, don't forget the videos are also on my YouTube channel. See you next Monday. Have a great week and keep on being brilliant.